You already are seated. <laughs> All right, Isaiah 43. So there are some things that are more fearful than others, right? Uh, this past week, or a couple weeks ago now, I guess, uh, when I was at the Cape with my family, we like to go to these ponds called kettle ponds. And I don't have time to explain what that means, but they're just freshwater ponds. And they're in the Cape, and, and so we, I bring my paddleboard, and I, I get it all ready, and I, I go out, and I start paddleboarding. I stand up all confident, you know, as I get in the water. And uh, it's not much wind, but uh, pretty much feeling like I'm confident and in control of things. And I paddle across the lake or the pond. Then a couple days later, we went to an ocean that was a beachfront ocean part that was a big wave <laughs> beachfront ocean. <laughs> I'm trying to say that right. <laughs> anyway, there was, there was huge waves that were crashing on, 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 the, on the beach. And uh, I thought about it for a second, and I contemplated it, and I thought, do I really want to take my paddleboard out into the ocean? And so I thought about it a little more, and a little more, and finally I got the courage to go out. And as I was going out, you know, the surf is crashing, you have to get past the surf, and even past the surf, there's these huge waves that you're kind of going up and down on. And I was no longer standing on my paddleboard. I was kneeling on my paddleboard. And I felt a real fear when I was out there. I looked over the ocean, and there is this uh, legitimate, real fear that I felt in my heart as I looked at this huge body of water and these swelling waves and looking at I have to go back in there <laughs> to get back to shore. There's a sobriety that comes over you, isn't there? But if you were to compare all the fears you could ever find in this world, you would come to the conclusion that there is really only one legitimate fear. There is only one thing to legitimately fear in this whole world when you compare all the fears that are out there. And that is the wrath of God. We confronted the wrath of God in Isaiah 42, verses 18 through 25. That is the context of what we're coming to today. The immediate context before these verses we are looking at is the wrath of God. And God said that His blind and deaf people refused to hear and listen to Him and see Him. They had rebelled against Him. And so He set them on fire. He set fire all around them, in front them, of them and in back of them. And yet they couldn't see and they couldn't hear. They couldn't understand what God was doing. There is nothing more fearful than being in such a condition with God. What is concerning is we can hear such things as we did a few weeks ago. And we can be more fearful of other things such as COVID-19, losing our health, losing our reputation with those around us. And we can fail 
to feel the reality of what it means to be under the wrath of God. Isn't that amazing? There is something seriously wrong with that. There is something that is so distorted about us. If we don't sense a, 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 a feel a sense of sobriety, a sense of a sense of 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 of, of, of amazement at the greatness of God when we hear such passages. There is something wrong with us, something faithless about us. And what I want us to understand is that just as much as there is nothing you must fear as much as the wrath of God if you are not under God's favor, so in the same way there is nothing to fear Just as much, there's nothing to fear if you're under the favor of God. And that is the sense of this passage. Is that yes, there is everything to fear if you're under the wrath of God. But in the same way, there is absolutely nothing to fear if you're under God's favor. God drives out all fears when we are in Christ Jesus. You can see the transition here from the fear of God's wrath to his comfort in the words, but now, thus says the Lord. This is a transition. Kind of like Ephesians 2 verse 4, where we talked about you were dead in your sins, but God made us alive. Right? There's that transition from the one to the other. And so now God begins to tell his people why they must not fear, why there's nothing to fear if you're in in God, if you're trusting in Him and looking to Him. And what might be surprising to you, if you looked throughout the Bible, you might be surprised, and if you look particularly at this passage, how much God is concerned that you do not fear. God is very concerned that you do not fear. God is incredibly concerned if believing children of His, God is incredibly concerned for His church for his people, that they do not fear. We have a tendency to live in bondage to fear, don't we? I do. This is part of our sinful nature that we still carry around with us. We still carry this tendency to fear. But notice, God says 365 times, I didn't check it up, but I read that this was true. In the Bible, fear not. 365 times. I believe that's one time every day of the year, isn't it? I don't know why, what that means. But But in this passage, God says two times not to fear. And the rest of this passage explains why you should not fear. It gives the reasons why you should not fear. This is why you should not fear. And in fact, this passage goes from 43 verse 1 to 44 verse 5. And we just don't have time to cover all of the passage today. So we'll pick up in part 2 for why you should not fear next week. But God argues and argues why you should not fear but find comfort in Him if you are indeed trusting in, in God. And my desire is to use God's Word to drive out the fear in your heart so that you can live courageously and, not, and are not in bondage to fear. And there's also one more benefit to this passage. This passage is so helpful because it reminds us how God encourages us, how God comforts us. And there are so many different ways in the world 
that the world is trying to comfort us. So many different ways that are not God's ways. And so we need to understand, how does God bring comfort? This is how I should feel comfort, is how God brings it. So first, how does God drive out the fear from his people? Well, in verses 1 through 7, God comforts you by telling you, I am with you, and I am for you, and what this means. And so all of this argument is based on the fact that God is with you, that he is for you, and what that means. So first, be comforted by knowing that God created and formed you to be his people. It says, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel. The word created here has to do with forming out of nothing. It brings us back to Genesis 1, ver- 1 through 2, where God created everything out of nothing. It's incredibly profound words when you think about it. God creating everything out of nothing, bring it into existence. And the word formed has more to do with a potter, forming and shaping and making his creation to look like he intends it to look like. God creates and God forms. But what he creates and forms here is not creation itself, but his people, Israel. God, just as he created and formed the universe, has created and formed his people out of nothing. He brought them forth and he forms them to be the people he calls them out to be. The names that God gives for his people, both Jacob and Israel, reinforces the imagery of God creating and forming, doesn't it? God gave them these names. And God was saying that I have formed you, I have created you to follow a different course, to follow a different purpose, to to be my representatives in this world. And so if you remember, remember Peter, and when he acted in the flesh, when his flesh uh, came rearing to the front, God says, Simon, Simon, (laughs) Simon, Simon. That's who he was before, right? But God gave him a new name. And so what we see here is that God creates, God forms. And we see that even in the name he gives them. In a similar way, God has created and God has formed his church, hasn't he? God has created his church. He's brought us forth out of nothing when we were dead in our sins. And he is shaping us and forming us to reflect his image. This means comfort, comfort for God's people. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. Isn't that good news? God is going to complete the work he began to do in you. That is the greatest news of all and should bring us comfort. Be comforted by knowing that God has redeemed you and that he therefore possesses you. You are his. And and these words, these huge words kind of string together. You can't separate them where it says, For I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. (laughs) They're all together there. They're inseparable. To redeem someone means to pay a debt. To release someone from slavery. Right? A picture of redemption is God delivering Egypt from slavery. Remember that? God delivered them from slavery and bondage. And guess what God says? You are mine. I have redeemed you. You belong to me. He purchased them from slavery. Another picture is of Boaz. 
Remember Boaz was Ruth's kinsman redeemer? He bought her. She belonged to him. A great picture of what God does. But the greatest picture of redemption would be Christ's work on the cross. That is the great picture that we are to behold this morning. That God, that Christ has redeemed his people. That he has purchased them from slavery. That they are his people. They belong to him. We are his. We are purchased so that we might serve him. And this calling is inseparable from redemption. It is not a general calling. It's saying here, there are passages in the Bible that talks about a general calling. But here it's talking about an effectual calling. That God effects what he calls. He brings it about. He brings it into being. This is a loving, effectual, accomplishing call. Where he says, you are mine. You belong to me. It accomplishes his purposes. To say you are mine is associated with marriage. It's associated with marriage. It's saying you belong to me. Are there any more loving words? And I wonder if you've ever thought of God thinking of you this way. I wonder if you've ever thought of God thinking of you as you are mine. If you are God's child, then that's what God thinks of you as. He loves you with a love that says you are mine. You belong to me. What amazing love God displays. Do you understand how God thinks of you, believer? Do you understand how much God loves you? God cares for you. That he calls you his own. Now you might ask, does God being for you like this and loving you like this, does that mean that you're going to escape every trouble? And the answer is no. It means that he will be with you and that he will keep you in the midst of them. Listen to verse 2 here. When you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you. You know, sometimes we think if God loves me, then he's going to keep me from all trouble and difficulties. But I want us to understand the words here for fire and water are words that refer to God's judgment for our sin. It refers to the, 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 the fallen world around us that's falling apart in, in the height of that judgment that we might experience through the trials and difficulties and disasters of this life. God destroyed the entire world through water, didn't he? Through the flood in Noah's day. God will destroy the world with fire on the last day. So fire and water represent the trials and struggles that plague us throughout our lives, that we go through all the time. Both believers and unbelievers will experience such trials, won't we? None of us escapes them. But what is promised is that God will be with you through all of this. Is there more comforting words than to know that God is with you in the midst of them? And how do we know God is with us? How can God say he's going to be with us? And all we need to do is go back to the cross, don't we? And remember that he has experienced the greatest, um, the greatest trouble, the greatest trial, the greatest, um, ex- the greatest pain you could ever experience. And he says, I am with you in that. I have been there before and I'll be with you in it. And what is also promised is that it will prevent you from being overwhelmed, burned, consumed. 
so that you are destroyed. Now this doesn't mean you won't be killed, does it? It doesn't mean you're not going to be uh, suffer greatly in this life. It doesn't mean that at all. What it means is that God is going to keep your faith alive. God is going to keep your faith from failing. God's people will not be annihilated. His church will prevail. God will keep His church alive by His gracious, preserving power. Through faith in Christ alone, He keeps our faith alive. He preserves His people. What an awesome God. And what great comfort we can have in Him. On top of this, God is actually refining our faith through the fire and through the water. God is refining us. God is using the fire and the water to make us more like Him, to make us into His image. All things are working together for good to those who love God and are called according to His purpose. Isn't that good to know? The world cannot say that. But we can say that all things are working together for our good. Because God is refining us. Even the difficulties in our lives are for our good believers. And so we thank God for all things and find comfort in Him. If God's presence with you is a reason for your comfort in life, then to experience this comfort fully requires that you know God's name. And I want you to think about that for a minute. God, you experience the comfort of God because He is with you. But if you are to fully know and understand the comfort that God gives to you, you need to know the fullness of who God is. And that's how God brings comfort to you. Listen to what he says here. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. That is comfort. That is comfort. Those are words of comfort like you'll never find anywhere else. He is the one who made himself known through his relationship to Israel. He is the Holy One, meaning that He is unique and separate from all others. There is no one like Him. There is no one who compares with Him. He is separate from all of His creation. He stands alone. He is the only Savior. And this is what you are to know about Him. You are to know that He is the only Savior who delivers His people over and over and over again and says, I am your Savior. I am your Savior. I am your Savior. And this is how God has made himself known. And this is what we must understand about him if we are to know him. Did you notice a difference between how God encourages people versus how we often encourage people in our day? Did you notice a little difference between God's way of encouraging versus the way we often encourage people today? God does not encourage people by building up their self-esteem. God does not bring comfort by pointing inwardly based on yourself, on your own value, on your own goodness. You see, some who will face God's judgment forever will have, been the, will have had the greatest self-esteem of all people. <laughs> but God chiefly encourages people by telling them who He is. That He is with them. And that He is for them. That is where we need to turn if we're to find comfort and encouragement and strength in this life. And my question for you, church, is do you know this God? Do you know this great God? And do you know the comfort that comes from, from that can only come from knowing Him? 
You will not find comfort anywhere else. So how much does God care for you? Well, God expresses how much He is for you by declaring that there is no price that He will not pay, no price too high that He will not pay for your redemption, no length that He would not go to save you. Listen to what He says in verse 3 through 4. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you, because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. So what does it mean that God gives Egypt as a ransom for you? What does that mean? Well, when God delivered Israel from Egypt, if you remember, Egypt paid a heavy price, didn't they? He brought the plagues on them. He killed their firstborn sons. He plundered them on their way out. Israel literally plundered Egypt. They brought out all their treasures with them. Egypt gave them their treasures willingly. (laughs) He defeated their army in in the sea. God did. Amazing. In other words, God saved Israel at Egypt's expense. And how does this express God's care? Well, he says, I am willing to redeem you at the price of the Gentile nations. I am willing to ransom you at the price of the Gentile nations. That's what God says. There's no price too high. But there's a greater ransom, isn't there? There is ultimately no greater ransom than the price that, that Christ has paid, that God paid through sending His Son to die for us on the cross. There is no greater ransom than that. There's no greater price that has ever been paid or could ever be paid than what, than what God paid. God would ultimately ransom His people at the cost of His own Son. Not at the cost of Egypt or Cush or Seba. Those are just faraway lands saying, I'll go that distance for you. But the greater ransom is Jesus Christ. He gave His life as a ransom for many, according to Matthew 20, verse 28. In other words, He who knew no sin became sin for us. This means there's no price too high for God to pay to redeem his people. You know, when you look at Paul's argument, you can understand what this means and the the great significance of it. You can understand the, the comfort that this should bring to our lives. When he says, he did not spare his own son, if he did not spare his own son, how will he not with him also freely give us all things? Do you understand the argument that's being made there? Paul is saying that he's giving us the greater argument to tell us that He will give us every lesser thing. If He did not spare the greatest thing, His own Son, how will He not give us every lesser thing that we could possibly need? And that's the comfort we have in God because of what Christ did on the cross. He has spared no expense in sending His Son and He will clearly and freely give us all lesser things that we need. And everything is lesser for sure. That's from Romans 8 verse 32. So why does he do this? He does this because he cares so much for his people. Listen to what he says about them. Because they are precious in his sight and honored and he loves them. God says you are precious. God says he loves you. And those are words of a bridegroom to their bride. 
That's the words of love. It's the words of compassion. He cares for you. And so my question for you at this point is, does this therefore contradict everything I've said so far? Does this mean that God has acted because of something intrinsically good inside of you? Does this mean that what motivates God is because you are worth something? And that you are valuable and you are lovely? Is that what Isaiah is saying here? Well, if you ignored the context and other passages, you could come to that conclusion, couldn't you? But you have to remember that God has already just said that they are under His wrath. That they are naturally under His wrath. That His people are blind and deaf. Do you remember that? Verses, chapter 42, verses 18 through 25 um, Isaiah, in vivid language, describes the people of God that they were deaf and blind, right? Then if you remember earlier on, God says His people, Jacob, He calls them a worm. If God were trying to build up their sense of self-worth and self-esteem, He would be giving a very confusing message that would make absolutely no sense. One time telling them they are lovely and the next time telling them they are worms, He would be all over the place in a complete contradiction. But the truth is that God's love that compels him to ransom his people and see them as precious is not due to any intrinsic value in themselves. It's not due to because of who you are. God's ransoming love for you is based on who he is and his commitment alone. Because he chooses to love you and pour his grace on you. Now, this brings up a question. Does this make his love for you less? Does this make his his treasuring you less than if it was because of something in you? And that's the way we naturally think, don't we? We naturally think if it's not because of something in me, then it's got to be a lesser love. It's got to be a lesser valuing. But the answer is, in no way is it less. In fact, it is a greater love. It is a greater value then were it to be compelled by something in you. And in fact, what it means is that it cannot be lost ever. That your goodness or your badness cannot take God's, God's love for you away. Because it's not based on you, but based on Him. Isn't that amazing? That is an awesome thought. This means you can count on God's love rather than live in fear that your actions are going to cause you to fall out of His love. He knows who you really are. And that we are not lovable in ourselves. And His grace is that He loves you without delusion. You know, oftentimes when people get married today, they're a bit delusional, aren't they? They go into marriage thinking one thing, but then they find out that there are two sinners here. (laughs) There are two sinners. and, And they are not who they thought they were. And the person they married is not who they thought they were. Right? And that's when you really start loving each other. But for God, God knows who you are. And God pours out His love in your life by saving you, by changing you. And what is more is He's determined to make you lovely so that you reflect His own Son in the way you were intended to do. To the praise of God's great name. So this means, as we said earlier, 
that we are valuable not because of who we are, but because of whose we are. We are valuable because of who we belong to, not because of who we are. I heard an illustration from Pastor Brian Borgman that I think is helpful. And I want you to imagine buying an old guitar for one million dollars. Just imagine you had a million dollars. And imagine if this old guitar sounded like a piece of junk. Like you tried playing it and it just didn't sound right. It was old and broken down. And so everyone wonders, why did you spend a million dollars for that guitar? Then imagine if you found out that this was Elvis's first guitar. And what this means is it's not who you are, but it's whose you are. It's who you belong to. How much does our value as image bearers increase when we are possessed by God himself? It is who we belong to that matters. You might say there's one great obstacle standing in the way of God's purpose for his people. How can God possibly deliver his people? How can he do that so his people might live in fear, thinking that it is impossible for God to deliver his people, to bring his people back from captivity, to deliver them from slavery, from their sin? It is an impossible thing to do. How can he ever do this? But God says here that he'll restore his people even though it would appear impossible. And that's what he says in verses 5 through 7. And we need to understand that the most fearful thing that would, have been, uh, that would have been in the heart of God's people is not so much whether they had food to eat or, or something to drink. They had plenty of stuff being in Babylon. But for those of faith, the most fearful thing would be whether God was able to restore them or whether God wanted to restore them. And could he restore them? Restoration seemed impossible. And we need to understand that that had never happened before. You see, when someone was brought into exile, it was purposefully designed in order to destroy your nationality. It was purposefully designed so that they would never be a people again. That was the purpose of it, and that had never happened before. And so it looked like it was impossible for God to restore his people, to bring them back from exile. Yet despite this impossible situation, God promises restoration. He promises to do what was impossible. God says, I will bring them back. He will freely restore them from their captivity. And you must understand that the restoration here is clearly not primarily his deliverance from Babylon, but is much greater. The deliverance from Babylon is merely a shadow of the greater deliverance that God would bring about. God would bring his people from the corners of the earth. That is much greater than Babylon, isn't it? The extravagant language says that he can bring them from anywhere, that there's nowhere that God cannot restore his people. And we see this as a greater restoration being fulfilled in the New Testament as the people of God are gathered and saved throughout the whole world. The gathering of the Gentiles from every nation to faith in Jesus Christ is the ultimate fulfillment of this. And we see this being fulfilled in Acts when his people are gathered throughout the world. Like Abraham, it's those who believe in Jesus Christ by faith. 
and are saved. And for 2,000 years, we've seen this going on. Praise God for his amazing power and grace. He does the impossible. We are brought into God's mind here and given the extraordinary purposes of God. We are told that why is God doing this? Why is God saving his people? Why is God restoring them? Why did God create, form, and redeem his people? And the bottom line reason is this. For his glory. Isn't it awesome when God lets us into his mind? Isn't it incredible when God gives us a glimpse into his purposes? God says he does this for his glory. And why does this matter? Well, this is a supremely comforting explanation for God's people to know. They need to know their purpose for why God saved them if they are to have comfort. You see, if God saved us for his glory, then it's impossible for him not to finish what he started. God's glory will never be dishonored. God will always honor his glory. He is as passionate for his glory as he is in saving his people. Think about that. God is not half-hearted in saving you because he is as passionate for his glory as he is in saving you. So how how comforting is it to finally know and live for the purpose why you are created for his glory? You and I have an obligation to seek out what does it mean for me to live for the glory of God? That is what we are created for and that's what we can finally do with our lives. We can live for his glory. And we need to live our lives understanding what that means. And for the first time in our lives, we can actually live. We can actually live when we are living for his glory. Paul said this, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. And this means that you're not to think of yourself, as one man said, as playing a supporting role in a movie that features you and me as the big stars. We exist to magnify and proclaim God's worth and his glory. And that leads us to our final point here. How does God drive out the fear of his people? Well, in verses 8 through 13, God brings comfort by explaining the great purpose for us that he has planned. What is the great purpose that God has planned for us? Well, his purpose is that we would be his witnesses. That is how we glorify God with our lives. And he says, I will accomplish this through you. And this is how I'm going to use you to glorify my name and bring you the greatest joy. So what we have here is a trial scene. There's a court going on. And God is establishing it. And he is challenging the nations to prove who is the true God. On the one side are gathering those who are God's people or are going to be God's witnesses in verse 8. And then on the other side are gathering the Gentiles and those from the nations who are going to be the idol's witnesses. In verse 9. And to prove the case, God challenges the nations to present evidence that their idols are truly God at all. He challenges them to meet the qualifications. And so what might be the qualifications to prove that they are God? Well, they must foretell the future and make it come to pass. And doesn't this sound a little risky to you? 
when you hear this? Doesn't it sound a little risky? I mean, is God really willing to risk it here? But the answer is, there is no risk involved at all. (laughs) Because they are not gods at all. This reminds you that you are not to fear the idols of the world. You are not to fear the philosophies, the religions, the teachings of this world, because they are nothing. The gods of this world are nothing. You don't have to fear other religions or philosophies. Now in contrast to the worthless idols, God then turns to his people, his servants, and he says that they are to bear witness that he is the one and only true God in verses 10 through 13. And do you notice a problem with these witnesses already? Do you notice that these witnesses are blind and deaf? And who would ever choose witnesses that are blind and deaf? We saw that in verse 8. Who would ever choose such witnesses? How do deaf and blind people bear witness? Well, they simply return to Jerusalem. God fulfills his purpose for them, doesn't he? In doing this, they confirm that God is the true God. In this way, God shows that he does indeed tell the future and fulfills it. But God is using the deliverance of his blind and deaf people as a witness to the world. But one day they will no longer be blind and deaf. God is going to change his people so that they can see. And we see this in Acts 1 verse 8 when Jesus said to the apostles, You will be my witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, and to the ends of the earth. And notice that they began to fulfill that purpose when the Spirit of God came upon them. And they were indeed God's witnesses to the ends of the earth. When God opened their eyes and opened their ears so that they could see. So what is God's first purpose for his witness? Well, surprisingly, it's not that they go and witness to people. God's first witness is that they know and believe that he is the only God. That's what it says here. That God has chosen them so that they would know and believe that he is God. He has chosen you so that you would know and believe in God. Before you can be a witness for God, you must first know and believe him. You must experience him. How can you be a witness for him if you don't know him and if you don't believe him? This is not some intellectual theories that we are promoting. This is a real living Savior who changes us. It says here what you are to know and believe about this God. And it says in this one statement that I am He. (laughs) That's what you are to know and believe. And then it expounds on that in verses 10 through 13. It expounds on what it means that He is, that I am He. (laughs) It means to know that He alone is the supreme being, that there is no one like Him. That He alone is God. That He stands alone in contrast to all others. It means to know experientially that He is the only Savior. God proved over and over again through His people that He is the only Savior. And ultimately, He proved that He is the only Savior through dying on the cross and rising from the dead. It means to know that He alone declares, saves, and proclaims. And you say, what does that mean? What does it mean that He declares, saves, and proclaims? Well, to to declare means that He predicts what's going to happen. To save means he fulfills in history what he predicts. And to proclaim means that he spreads the news of that accomplishment. And how does he do that? Through his witnesses. God does that through his witnesses. And he does this without the help of any gods. 
That's what it says here. Without the help of any gods. No strange foreign gods were with him. He did it by his own power and his own strength. And it means to know finally that he is the eternally sovereign God. He accomplishes everything he sets out to do and nothing can stand against him. So where do we see the statement, I am he again? Well, Jesus referred to himself as I am he, didn't he? Remember in the garden, they were looking for him? And he says, I am he. What a profound statement. And they all fell over, didn't they? Only when you come to know and believe God, that he is the only God, are you able to bear witness that he is the only God. That is the substance of our testimony. That he is the only God and the only Savior. This means you are not a faithful witness to claim that Jesus is a higher power or that there are many paths that lead to God or that Jesus is one of many paths that lead to God. Jesus is not a higher power. He is the only power. He is not the best way. He is the only way. And you're only a faithful witness if you proclaim him that way. So here's the answer to the question. Why did God save you? God saved you so that you would glorify him through bearing witness to who he is. This is why God saved you. So that we would spread his fame, his glory, his greatness throughout the whole world. That there is no one like him and that he is the only savior. Are you a witness of God? Is your life uh, bearing witness to the reality of who God is? How about this past week? Has it been your ambition to bear witness to the world of who God is? Are you willfully joining with God's purpose of glorifying himself? Here's another question. Are you worshiping God by joyfully expressing his greatness in action and in word? Witnessing is about worshiping. When we are worshiping God, we're going to declare his praise wherever we go. If not, you first need to come to know and believe who this God is. And then you will bear witness of him. This is exactly what Peter said in Acts 4, verse 18 through 19. Listen to what he said. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. We cannot but speak of what we've seen and heard. God makes his people into witnesses. They will be his witnesses. We will be his witnesses if we are his people. What a privilege, what a joy, and what a responsibility. So believers, God wants to free you from the bondage of fear for your good and for his glory. We need freedom from fear to honor God. If you're trusting Christ, there is no reason to fear anything in this world. God cares for you so much that he works and labors to free you from fear. Not only is God with you, but he has called you and equipped you to bear witness to his name. So what about when I do fear? You and I are going to fear with our lives. Isn't that true? We're going to have times when we're going to fear. I'm going to fear and you're going to fear. And the answer is to look to Christ. You see, when we look to Christ... The things of this world will look so much smaller. When I went out on that ocean, when the waves looked so big, 
When you look at Christ, you see that the ocean was created by him, (laughs) that it is nothing compared to him, that it is infinitely small compared to him. We need to immediately turn our eyes to him. This is what David said in Psalm 61, verse 1. He said, when life is overwhelming, when his heart is faint, he said, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. And that's the response we need to have, church. We need to look to Christ, and he will remove our fears and free us from our bondage so that we can worship him and bear witness to his great name. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you so much, God, that you are such a great and powerful God, that you have redeemed us from our bondage, Lord. And I thank you that you are presently delivering us from our fears that still plague us. And God, I pray that you continue to make us bold and courageous. Help us to be loving people, courageous people. Help us to speak the truth of your great name to the world. Help us to say that you are the unique God. Help us not be afraid of that. Lord, there are so many fears that plague us, Lord. We're so afraid of what people think of us. We're so afraid of losing our reputation. But Lord, you are God, and there is no one like you. And I pray that you would give us courage and boldness and joy to proclaim the truth of who you are to the world that's around us. Help us to proclaim that you are the only Savior. And give us joy as we do so. Thank you, Lord, that you've called us out of darkness and into your light. That you are recreating us into people who reflect your glory. And Lord, may we be a witness and a bright light to the world around us. In Jesus' name, amen.